Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. This is the podcast where we have casual conversations with entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and people who just have that entrepreneurial spirit. Thank you for being part of this community. Thank you for everybody who has joined the Facebook page, who send us notes on Twitter at Cool Podcast. I am so appreciative of people who leave reviews on iTunes. All that stuff is fantastic. And of course, we now have the Cool Things Project, which is our group coaching community. And we have a small but mighty group. And if you're interested in sort of having a little bit of accountability, and some fresh ideas and a weekly conversation with other people who want, just want to find ways to be more entrepreneurial and find more success in their careers, join us. And you can find that information at TomSinger.com. Go to the About button and you will find a little drop-down menu and it'll say Group Coaching Program. We would love to have you join us. So now it is time for another interview with somebody cool. And I had the pleasure a couple of weeks ago of meeting Josh Packard at an event where I was sort of the master of ceremonies. I got the chance to to hang out with him a little bit beforehand and to introduce him to the crowd. And this crowd was a crowd for the National Speakers Association. It was a conference of people who have the certified speaking professional designation, the CSP. So I got to tell you, that is a really tough audience to speak to especially if you're not a professional speaker. And Josh is a professor of sociology at the, uh, Northern, yeah, the University at Northern Colorado University. And he is also the director of their social research lab there at the university. And he's written a book called Church Refugees, and he's doing some very interesting things. And a lot of you might say, a professor who is entrepreneurial? What? But that's exactly who Josh is. And so I immediately wanted to ask him to jump over here and join us on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. So, Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, tell everybody a little bit more about, about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So, uh, I'm, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a sociologist here at the University of Northern Colorado where I teach classes and do research, mentor students, all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, and, and then as a big part of my job, I'm the director of the social research lab where we um, really serve two missions. One is to be a resource for our surrounding community, um, especially we work with a lot of nonprofits and civic groups, but also some for-profit companies that maybe don't have their own research arm or don't have the expertise to do it. They come to us and, uh, and they can get surveys completed. We do focus groups, you know, all that kind of market research too, a, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but the, the, the gain for us is that we, we utilize our students very heavily, so they get you know, real practical applied experience that is is sort of more tangible than just what you would learn in a classroom because they're working on projects that are ultimately going to impact decisions for hiring and firing and strategic marketing decisions and all kinds of stuff. Um, so it's a win-win for everybody. Um, the, and I think maybe the, the big win for the community is that we don't, maybe we don't go as fast as a, uh, as a for-profit company does, but um, all the projects are overseen by faculty and we cost a little bit less. So the quality is still high and, and they get it at a good price. So it's this really great partnership between the university and, and our surrounding community where we get to sort of be a resource for each other. Well, and that's great for the students that they get to get in and learn how to do real, like, real life, hands-on that's exactly research. Right. 
you know, yeah, like, it's, it, you know, when it's a, it, every bit as messy as real life is, they get to see all that mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I know that just in what I do for a living research is, and, you know, being able to back stuff up with legitimate data is becoming so much more important in the business mm-hmm. world that it's really great for the students, no matter what they go on to do. Yeah. And it's, they, um, I think our students, you know, we, we drill them so hard on, on trying to make sure that they get these skills that we want them to have. But, um, you've probably seen the same surveys I have that it's these soft skills that are in demand and the lab sort of unintentionally becomes a place where we get to teach that stuff. I, I tell my students all the time, this is 75% of this is not technical skill. You know, 75% of this is client relations. <laughs> can, you know, can you answer emails professionally and quickly? Can you put people's minds at ease that their project is in good hands and their data will not be compromised, et cetera? And then 25% is the actual, you know, can we, you know, wording a survey correctly and getting it out on the right, uh, at the right time to the right people and all that kind of stuff. But they, they tend to think that that model is flipped, right? They tend to think that this is all the technical work and then a little bit of client management on the back end. But in fact, it's the soft skills that everybody needs. That's really what we're doing. So a lot of your own research has been around what led into your book, Church Refugees. Can you talk a little bit about your, your sort of main research that you've done? Yeah, sure. Um, the, I took a really classical, traditional approach early on in my career where, I mean, I, I got a PhD from Vanderbilt, which is a very good um, uh, sociology program. I'm, not, I'm still not quite sure how I got admitted into that program, but <laughs> I, I did, and I managed to stick around for long enough for them to give me a PhD, and that was fantastic. And I got, you know, when you're in a program like that, you get really sort of rooted in this classic academic model where you end up writing things that really only a handful of other people can understand and are even interested in understanding, frankly. Um, but that was, and I did that and I, I was, I was reasonably successful at that, I guess. I mean, I got, I got jobs because of it, but it, it was ultimately really unsatisfying to me. Um, and I, I'm glad I can do it. And, and it's certainly still part of what I do, but I really moved into this space in the last couple of years of, of being, um, more of a, of a um, somebody who wants to speak to a broader audience. So I'm still collecting my own data about um, institutional decline. The institutional decline I've been interested in most has been in the field of religion, but specifically why people don't go to church anymore. Um, but it's part of a larger trend of, you know, the move in America away from um, institutions to coordinate our social lives, whether that's in education or religion or wherever. Um, and, the, you know, uh, sort of part and parcel with that, the declining trust that people have for their leaders. But rather than seeing my role, and I think this is why I was so excited to come in and talk with you today, is because rather than seeing my role as sort of an academic who produces information that maybe hopefully someday somebody somewhere will use, I, I really wanted to, to be the person who could help to, to distill and translate what I think are really useful academic uh, concepts to you know, things that people can actually implement in, in their daily lives. Universities are, are really great places, but they often do a, a very terrible job of being able to connect with their communities um, and sort of end up sort of storehousing all this knowledge that I guess sort of gets wasted at some level. And I wanted to not be a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> so you have actually, you know, taken your research and, and beyond just the, the religious institutions, you have found the correlations into a lot of other institutions that face decline and how yeah. these relate to things. And then you're taking that message to the average person. Like you said, that a lot of people in academia write for other people in academia. Mm-hmm. But you're actually trying to take that message and make it useful in the world of, of meetings, in the world of business, in the world of higher education and the world of religion. So right. let's talk about being sort of 
entrepreneurial as a professor. I mean, I said in the introduction, some people would think, you know, when I think back on my professors, they were the farthest thing away farthest from someone. Thing, right. <laughs> isn't, isn't tenure the antithesis of entrepreneurialism? <laughs> That's right. You now, we cannot fire you and just go do whatever you want. But but how did you make that transition from, you know, standard academic researcher to being a person who says, I want to do this a little differently? Well, I think that, first of all, it, it comes from, uh, you know, you, you probably encounter this a lot, that you, you have to want to be an entrepreneur. Nobody accidentally becomes one. <laughs> um, and I grew up in a family where, I mean, both my, both my parents were entrepreneurs um, in a variety of ways, most notably running McDonald's franchises for a long time. But even before that, um, uh, running a variety of small businesses as we moved around um, from place to place. And uh, I think that spirit was always inside of me. And so, I, you know, as I got further into academia and had a little bit more, I, I don't know, I built up a little bit of credibility and I thought like, okay, so what, how, can I, how can I capitalize on this goodwill and credibility and sort of job security? How can I really use this for, to, to do something that I think would be, that I think would be cool? And, and that's how I hit on this. But it was a challenge. I mean, you know, there's a, as much as there's a stigma in terms of academics not wanting to be entrepreneurial, it, it, for me, I had to get people to trust me to overcome that in terms of like, you know, when I went to a publisher who wasn't, you know, a university press, the, the book that I wrote was on a, it's on group publishing, which, you know, makes most of their money publishing vacation Bible school curriculum. <laughs> when I said, you know, when I said, I'm a professor, and I would like to write a book for your, you know, with on your press, they looked at me like, you know, they were interested in the idea, but I don't think they thought I could do it. Right. Um, because they didn't, you know, and I think for good reason, because most professors probably aren't very good at translating those ideas. And so I had, I really had to work to overcome a little bit of that. And even, you know, even when I spoke a couple of weeks ago with you all, there was some of that in the room that yeah, after first few, after the first few minutes of me being able to, you know, like speak in complete sentences and make a joke and be reasonably interesting, it goes away. But that barrier of what is this professor going to come in? How boring is this going to be? Um, certainly exists. Most people don't look back on their university classes and think that was the most exciting thing I ever sat through. <laughs> right. Well, I, so I have this group coaching project and some of the people who are involved in the community are people who are in more traditional jobs who they're not necessarily looking to, to toss that away, but they right. want to be more entrepreneurial. And we did a little exercise on our group call the other day where we went through a list of words that resonated with when you think of an entrepreneur, what comes oh, yeah. to mind? And they threw out words like driven and risk taker and uh-huh. ownership and, and sales oriented and multifocused and big thinker slash out of the box, <laughs> creative, self-confident. I'm looking down this list. It goes on and on. And then yeah. at the end of the exercise, I said, can't you behave that way in your existing job? Right. And so I, you know, when I look at you and what you do as a professor and then sort of the, the ancillary things you're doing with your book and your speaking and, and consulting with companies and organizations, I mean, that's really what you're doing, right? I mean, you're, you're taking those entrepreneurial themes and just wearing them on the outside. Yeah, I'm certainly trying to. I mean, we take, if we take a look at the lab for just as an example, I mean, I'm a big fan of, you know, I, I really like the job security and I really love the core components of my job. But, but I really like for people to tell me, and I think this is one of the benefits of being entrepreneurial in a nonprofit setting. I, I like for people to tell me this is the scope of your job and this is where we're going to leave you alone. And the lab for me is the place where I get left alone. And it was um, sort of on life support when I first got here because it hadn't been very well supported um, up until I got hired. And they just sort of said, do whatever you want to do with it. And I said, really? You mean it? I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and they, you know, I said, don't tell me that if I can't actually do what I want. And so then it shifted in, you know, from, 
as opposed to a lot of the sort of day-to-day work that I do, that became the place where I get to live out all those characteristics that you just that you just said. And that what the effect was that that spilled over into my research too, where I then went out and started selling my research in the same way that I sell the lab as a as a public private partnership almost to say hey, you know, I've gotten some, I've gotten some taxpayer-funded grants to help produce this research. I feel obligated to return value back to the taxpayers. So let's figure out some ways that I can disseminate this information. And in the lab, some, like, I'm, you know, we're, we're sending, we're doing direct mail. We're doing all kinds of classical marketing things to say, you know, we're here and, and we're a part of your community and we'd like to make our community better. And really sort of filling both of those missions at once. So it's, it is entrepreneurial in spirit, but I don't, think I've, I don't think anybody would say that I've strayed from the mission of a public university, which is you know, ultimately to be a, a good a benefit for the taxpayers of a given state. And so it's, it, that part has been really super to be able to navigate those things. But it wasn't until I had thought, you know, I, I guess I've been doing unintentionally the thing you just said, which was those characteristics, which I don't get to do normally, where's the space that I can do them? Because I, I, I can't do them everywhere in my job. You know what I mean? Sure. I, I, I can't be a risk taker and, and I can't be a salesman in class. There are, some, there are some core concepts that we need to teach, but I can do that in these other places. So, you know, it's interesting when I met you and, you and you talk about your research and you talk about the lab, you get really excited. I mean, I'm sure people picked up on that in the last couple minutes of this interview. So what is it that you love about what you've created where you can be both a professor and entrepreneurial? What do you love about your life? <laughs> Uh, well, in an era of declining state support for higher education, I love that I can have a little bit more control over my revenue stream. So that's fantastic. <laughs> um, but more than that, it's, it really is being able to, um, I don't, I don't have to worry when I go home at night thinking like, wait a minute, did I, did I do anything good for anybody today? You know, like the, the job is structured in such a way that it allows me to be as sort of, um, ruthlessly entrepreneurial as I want to be knowing that as long as I'm acting obviously within my ethical boundaries and all that kind of stuff, that the more success that the lab has, the better my community is doing. And I don't think I would feel that way if, if I were um, in a regular, if I was just being an entrepreneur in a, in a regular for-profit business, I I think, and, and not doing anything else on the side, I would go to bed at night thinking, is the world better off for what I did today or not? Um, and it would be a real question. And so I like that part of it, that, that I, get to, I get to scratch that itch and I get to be that entrepreneur without having to answer that question you know, every single night. So I think being entrepreneurial in your job is something that I think everyone can do it to some level. Not everybody gets sort of you know the long rope and just don't hang yourself you know situation. Right. But I'm, when I worked for a company and it's been a long time, but when I ran the marketing department for a law firm and a consulting firm, I treated the marketing division of that firm as if it was my own company. And I used to go into you know whoever my boss was on my sort of the anniversary of my job and say, if I was a consultant, would you rehire me for another year? And one of the partners in the law firm used to laugh. And and said, you know, you're so smart, you wouldn't ask a question you didn't know the answer to. <laughs> but, but the fact was, is I took ownership to the fact that I was providing a service that made a difference to the company yeah. that I worked for. So I believe that everybody can find ways to do that. So, I mean, here yeah. you are, you're a professor at a public university, and you have found a way to live, you know, part of your life as an entrepreneur, if you will, in quotes. What advice do you have for other people who want to do that? The, I mean, and this is what we talk about with my students all the time. I mean, when they get involved in the lab, especially, or when they get involved in my own research, um, you know, the, my book was co-authored with an, she was an undergraduate at the time, um, and now she's in graduate school. I, 
I try to convey to them that this I, I'm not offering you this or suggesting that you become a part of this because I think it's you know um, intrinsically better or something like that. What I tell them is that this is this is the way the world is going. That you know even if you want to go into higher ed um, and be a professor or something like that, that you're going to need to be able to do the to think this way. You know, we're it's a competitive education is a competitive marketplace, just like anything else. And if you're going to really be successful at this job. You need to make this as a you know one of the tools in your in your tool bag. So I think ultimately what I'm trying to get them to do, and the advice that I give for them is that like I don't need this to overtake your life. I'm not saying that you have to give up on this pursuit of knowledge or this pursuit of ideas, which is the passion of our students. Or if you're working in a nonprofit setting and you really care about serving the children in your community, you don't have to give up on on that as your central and primary passion. Um, what I tell them is that. I want to come in and, and give you another strategy for how to bolster that passion um, as opposed to sitting there and waiting for a, a funder to come through or for a grant to come through or for an opportunity to emerge. I want my students to be able to go out and, and create that opportunity for themselves when it's, when it's maybe sort of not there readily available. I wonder how many people are listening right now going, where was this guy when I was an undergraduate? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's it is it is rare. I mean, it's you know, it, it's great talking with you, Tom, and and it was great being at the with the uh, at the national speakers event because the you know, there's just not a lot of people here that speak that same kind of language, um, and so it is. I, I know what you mean. Like, it's it's hard to find in academia because it's and it's not for bad intention. There's no, I don't think people look down on entrepreneurs or anything like that. They just don't they don't speak that. That's not the background they come from at all. So how important do you think for, I mean, even in academia, but certainly for just life skills and, and getting success and finding those opportunities that you encourage people to go out and make, how important you know, is your network and, and the people you connect with? How important is that in, in life skills? It's been absolutely vital for me. I mean, I can't tell you that you know, early on, and I think this is the hard part about networks, is that I, you know, I took the advice that everybody takes, which is, meet as many people as you can. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that that's bad advice. It probably, it probably is necessary at some level. I think I was a little bit slow on the transition to moving away from quantity relationships to quality relationships and ended up, you know, sort of falling around, uh, not falling in, but, but being around a lot of people that didn't share this mindset. So my, my networks became important, not because I was strategically aligning myself with such, you know, important people or anything like that. They became important when I started, um, figuring out how to spend more time with people who were pursuing the same kinds of careers that I wanted to pursue. You know, so it's not like I know, you know, the 30 most influential people in my field, but I know 30 people that understand exactly what I'm going through and, and are trying to do this in their own little niche of academia and um, their own parts of the world, which that has been far more valuable to me than anything else. Which sort of dovetails to a message I talk a lot about on this show, and that is the importance of getting involved with an industry association, whatever that looks like. I know it's different for academia, mm -hmm. that it's going to be for doctors, that it's going to be for lawyers, that it's going to be for whoever. But you know, I'm really active in the National Speakers Association, and sometimes other people will be who are speakers will be like, nah, I don't want to put in that kind of time around other speakers. It's like we're in the weirdest business on the planet. If, you, if you're not right. involved in the association, if you don't have speaker buddies, how, who's going to understand? I mean, your husband or wife has no idea what it is to to do this job because it's different than doing whatever they do and so yeah. i think getting around people who like you said you know are, are pursuing the same goals who understand what the day-to-day -day life is I, I just think that's really important mm -hmm. i i couldn't agree more and it's like i said i mean i've got you know in my email list which is the or, you know my email book which is the modern day rolodex there there are 
you know, emails, addresses, and contacts of people that I'm on a, a, a you know, first name basis with who are, you know, incredibly influential in our, in our field would be considered famous, but they don't do me as much good in terms of helping me to navigate what's coming next for me and what I should be pursuing as, as the other people who are going through the same thing. Well, and I'm, I'm going to give you a compliment. The other thing is you, you know, you took that risk and went and spoke to a bunch of professional speakers and, and you did a great job. Everybody thought you were fantastic, but you weren't a professional speaker. You are a professor. And, sure. a, and yeah. afterwards, you sought out advice from people in the audience, from a number of people on what could I do to improve? So here you were giving a speech in front of, you know, arguably the toughest audience you may ever face. And you reached out and said, what did you think? What could I do better? Where, what are some tips? And I, I really admired that because what I took from that is here's a guy who's, who's got a PhD. I mean, you're a smart guy. You went to Vanderbilt, for goodness sake. You know, you're, you're teaching at a great university. And you're not too proud to say, I don't know everything. Here's an area that I'm not an expert. I'm, you know, I'm an expert in a lot of things, and I'm not an expert in this. Hey, here's some people who are. What do you think? What can you teach me? And I think I, I walked away from that encounter with you thinking I need to do more of that in my life. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for that compliment. I, it's, it was um, – I, I hope I made it sound like I was really confident asking that question, but I was not. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those things that I had decided ahead of time. Uh, my wife and I were talking, and I was like, I'm going to do this. It, it is the right thing to do. But I really don't want to hear the answer if it's going to go bad. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I committed to taking the medicine, and it turned out it was it was great. I mean, you know, it's, I've, I've said this to you. You you gave great feedback, but everybody was so incredibly kind and gracious. And that it's that has been my experience when you know when I gave my first talk at an academic conference, I ended up being on a panel with somebody who was a pretty big deal in the field. They just randomly threw us together, and I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to waste this. I mean, I'm going to. Uh, you know, even if even if the even if he tells me to you know to bug off or whatever, I'm still going to ask him what I, what is it that I could do better so I can you know so I can be like you at this essentially. Well, I think and, I think it's a great. smart I think that's a smart habit to be in, and I've I've done it before. I had the opportunity one time to actually drive Gary Vaynerchuk from a speech in Austin back to his hotel. I was part of a on the board of an association, and they they had Gary V as their speaker. And this was five years ago. It was before Gary Vaynerchuk was as famous as he is now, but he had already made sort of a, a mark for himself in sort of the, the video marketing world and, and things like that. And I had him in the car and uh, we were just chatting and I said, you know, what would you ask Gary V if he was sitting next to you in his car yeah, and, you, and, you, and you had him captive for 15 minutes or whatever yeah. it was going to be back to his hotel? And I always remember he looked at me and goes, that is a great question. And then he proceeded to just give me great advice. And, you know, I don't do that with everyone. And I think maybe I should do that more often. And hasn't it been your experience, though, when you've done this, that, I mean, people are generally, um, none of us, uh, you know, most of the people that we're hanging around with, none of us are so famous that we get tired of being asked that question. I mean, you know, when, when I have people, uh, you know, graduate students at other universities, when they contact me, tell me that they like my work and can we chat? I just, I'm still, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that there's anybody reading my research. And when pastors and, you know, uh, denominational officials or when the National Speakers Association calls, I just... I'm stunned that anybody's asking. And it, and it turns out when I ask other people those kinds of questions, they sort of feel the same way. I, you know, it's not, I don't think that uh, most people are just not so big for their britches that they won't take the time to, to talk with you. And I think even the famous people, you know, to some extent, you know, don't hear that as often. I think they get their butts kissed a lot, but I don't think they get sure. that. Hey, I admire what you do. What advice do you have? So yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really smart idea. So Josh, I've got a couple of more questions for you, but before I let you go, I got to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. 
Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Josh Packard. So if you want to start a podcast, and I know some of you do, reach out to Podfly Productions. Just go to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this podcast. So Josh, I call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What's the coolest thing you're doing in your business right now? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, the I would say we're really trying to make this push for our entire department to to move from this um, this traditional sociological approach where we focus a lot on theory and academic knowledge to being what we call an applied sociology program where we we really want our students to from day one to the to the final graduation whether that's with our master's degree or with our bachelor's degree to be gaining skills that they can use in the workplace and what that means um, what that means for me is that I am, you know, sort of pushing myself to be, to, 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 to market my position as director of the research lab on a more of a, uh, more than just a local level. So as a, as a regional and, 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 and the national level to share my own research about, um, uh, you know, audience participation and institutional affiliation and those things so that, that we can begin to build this profile around, Hey, if you if you want to if you want to come and get a degree where you can do sociology as a way to to make you make you better at your job or to make the world better, um, this is the place where you can do that. Um, if you want to go and just learn about sociology, there's lots of other really great universities, but we're trying to carve out that niche. And what that means for me is that I have to be um, a little bit more visible on the national and regional stage. And so that's been the big push. So, and you're having fun doing it because you seem I'm to like great fun doing it. Yeah. You seem to like the speaking. I mean, and you're good at it. Well, thanks. But yeah, it's a, it was a lot of fun. No, I think that I think that's great. So I think in addition, you know, to wanting to create great things, I think that entrepreneurs and people with the entrepreneurial spirit, no matter what they do for a living, I think those people are great observers. So I love to ask my guests, who's an entrepreneur out there that you see where you think, wow, that person is just crushing it. Yeah, well, doesn't it help to have those kind of those models of, of it gives you sort of a pathway forward, or at least you know envision um, you know the the career that could be had. And I think here, um, you know, the most famous example of somebody who does this sort of translating work is Malcolm Gladwell. And I'm, uh, it's not like I'm looking for a platform like his, but I, I want to be able to reach audiences in the same way that he does. Um, the at the same time, he's a, while he's a great translator and a great storyteller, I don't think that I would necessarily be okay with sort of not having my own research program, which is not his thing. You know, he's a journalist. It's fine. Um, and so along those lines, I think about Richard Florida, who does all that. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. but Yeah, he, I've, actually, I've actually met him. Uh, he yeah. came and spoke in Austin. Austin's one of his creative cities that he talks about. And, and I got the uh, opportunity to hang out with him for about an hour one night. Yeah, and that's, I, think he's, I think he's done a remarkable job of sort of um, – Still well respected in academic circles. Still does good research for the most. Uh, you know, I don't, you, occasionally you hear people will say some things, but I think it's mostly out of jealousy than anything else. To be quite honest, um, and yet obviously commands this very high profile stage where he gets to influence public policy, and that would be you know. So if there was if there was somebody out there, I was like you know, twenty years from now, what would I like? You know, if, if you told me I had that career, I would I'd be real happy. 
<laughs> well, the other question I love to ask everybody is, what is it that you do to give back to the greater good? Because in addition to being observers, I also think that I think entrepreneur, entrepreneurial people, they want to leave something behind. So, so what do you do? Well, the, so the lab is a big part of that. We, um, we really push, you know, we, we could probably market what we do in the lab to anybody, um, frankly, because the students are often working for class credit. Uh, we, we have a lot of interns. We are supported by graduate students. And so our overhead costs are real low. You know, we're cheap. Um, but we're, we're, we're not, like I said, we're not quick. <laughs> um, it takes us a little bit longer than the for-profit companies, but we don't, we don't do that as much. Um, we, we really push to make, um, really affordable services so that nonprofits, charter schools, lots of places in our community that probably wouldn't be doing any data collection, you know, any evaluation or any assessment can, can get good services at a reasonable price so that they can be more competitive for grants. They can understand, you know, where their programs are being effective and ineffective, which one, you know, which staff members are doing, uh, you know, a, a good job and which ones are maybe being underutilized or out of position and those kinds of things. Things that, you know, large for-profit companies have had at their disposal now for quite some time with the data revolution that's happened over the last decade. Nonprofits are, and municipal governments to some extent are just now sort of catching up on that wave. And we want to be a big uh, asset to help them move forward. I mean, I think that's awesome. Well, Josh Packard, in addition to being a great professor and, you know, a great researcher, you're also a really nice guy. It was a pleasure to have the ability to meet you when I was in Colorado a couple of, couple of weeks ago. And I really want to thank you for taking the time and coming, sh- coming and sharing your perspective about being entrepreneurial in sort of an institutional situation. Because I, I think that that's a message that people need to hear. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and if people want to find out more about Josh Packard, they want to find out more about your social research lab at the University of Northern Colorado, how do people find you? Yeah, they, um, it's real easy. It's joshpackard.com. Oh, that's simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Well, again, Josh, thank you so much for jumping on and being a guest here on the show. And thank you to those of you who listen. We have a great time. or We, it's me. I have a great time doing these interviews, and I hope that we as a community all get to learn from people like Josh. So we're going to be back in a couple of days with another interview with somebody just as cool. But in the meantime, go out there and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.